This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Well, good morning and welcome to Legacy 2017. Thank you for coming to this workshop. My name, as was said before, is Jamar Tisby. I serve as the president of the Reformed African American Network. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Before I go further, you are in the first of four workshops hosted by the Reformed African American Network on the history of black Christians. And we tell this story because it's a little known story. This is not what we tend to learn in the history books, but it's important history because any Christian history is our history. And so we tell those stories this afternoon. We're going to have a session by Dr. Alicia Jackson, who is a professor at Covenant College, and she's going to talk about the CME Church. That stands for Colored Methodist Episcopal Church and talk about the history of that. Tomorrow morning, we're going to have a roundtable discussion with myself, Dr. Jackson and Pastor Aaron James back there, who I'll introduce in a moment. And then we're, we're in that roundtable. We're going to talk about this question. Is the black church dead? That's coming off of a 2012 article written by a Princeton religion professor, Eddie S. Glaude Jr., and so we're going to discuss the past, the present, and the future of the black church. And then lastly, tomorrow afternoon, we will have a session talking about, is Christianity the white man's religion? And we're going to talk about the African roots of Christianity. So you won't want to miss any of these. I do want to introduce our team here today. So if anybody from the RAND staff or past the mic staff is here, please stand. I think two of our staffers are at the table. Let me introduce Bo York. He is our award-winning producer for the Pass the Mic podcast. Give it up for Bo. And then back in the back... Looking good with the beard, that is Reverend Aaron James. He is in charge of social media for us, appreciate you. And don't forget to stop by our RAND table in the exhibition hall and you will meet Elodie Quitant. She is in charge of our website along with her friend Crystal, who's sort of like an adjunct staff member for us. She helps us at these conferences. We couldn't do it without them. Be sure to shake your, their hands and introduce yourselves to them. Now, I want to introduce you to the inimitable, the courageous, the mighty Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. Bear with us. The audio is going to play separately from the video, so the timing might be off, but you're going to get uh, the idea. What you're about to hear is her best-known speech. It's a testimony before the Democratic National Committee in 1964 in Atlantic City. She went there as part of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, whose purpose was to unseat the all-white segregationist and unlawful Mississippi Democratic Party. When she goes there, she talks about her experience as a sharecropper in Mississippi, as well as a savage and brutal beating she received in a Mississippi jail for her civil rights efforts. Let's listen 
Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee. My name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Roosevelt, Mississippi, Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastland and Senator Stennis. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola with, by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. After we had taken this test and started back to Roosevelt, we was held up by the city police and the state highway patrolmen and carried back to Indianola, where the bus driver was charged that day with driving a bus the wrong color. After we paid the fine among us, we continued on to Roosevelt and Reverend Jeff Sonny carried me four miles in the rural area where I had worked as a timekeeper and sharecropper for 18 years. I was met there by my children that told me the plantation owner was angry because I had gone down, tried to register. After they told me, my husband came and said the plantation owner was raising cane because I had tried to register. And before he quit talking, the plantation owner came and said, Fannie Lou, do you know, did Pap tell you what I said? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I mean that, said, if you don't go down and withdraw your registration, you will have to leave. Said, then if you go down and withdraw, that you still might have to go because we are not ready for that in Mississippi. And I addressed him and told him, that I didn't try to register for you. I tried to register for myself. I had to leave that same night. On the 10th of September, 1962, 16 bullets were fired into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Tucker for me. That same night, two girls were shot in Roosevelt, Mississippi. Also, Mr. Joe McDonald's house was shot in. In June the 9th, 1963, I had attended a voter registration workshop, was returning back to Mississippi. Ten of us was traveling by the Continental Trailway bus. When we got to Winona, Mississippi, which is Montgomery County, four of the people got off to use the washroom and two of the people to use the restaurant. Two of the people wanted to use the washroom. The four people that had gone in to use the restaurant was ordered out during this time I was on the bus. But when I looked through the window and saw they had rushed out, I got off of the bus to see what had happened. And one of the ladies said it was a state highway patrolman and a chief of police ordered us out. 
I got back on the bus, and one of the persons who had used the washroom got back on the bus, too. As soon as I was seated on the bus, I saw when they began to get the five people in a highway patrolman's car. I stepped off of the bus to see what was happening, and somebody screamed from the car that the fire workers was in and said, get that one there. And when I went to get in the car, when the man told me I was under arrest, he cheeked me. I was carried to the county jail and put in the booking room. They left some of the people in the booking room and began to place us in sales. I was placed in a cell with a young woman called Miss Vesta Simpson. After I was placed in the cell, I began to hear sounds of licks and screams. I could hear the sounds of licks and horrible screams. And I could hear somebody say, can you say yes, sir, nigger? Can you say yes, sir? And they would say other horrible names. She would say, yes, I can say yes, sir. So I said, she said, I don't know you well enough. They beat her, I don't know how long. And after a while, she began to pray and ask God to have mercy on those people. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman. And he asked me where I was from. And I told him, Roosevelt. He said, we're going to check this. And they left my cell, and it wasn't too long before they came back. He said, you are from Roosevelt, all right, and he used a curse word. And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. I was carried out of that cell into another cell where they had two Negro prisoners. The state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro to take the blackjack. The first Negro prisoner ordered me by orders from the state highway patrolman for me to lay down on a bunk bed on my face. And I laid on my face, the first Negro began to beat. And I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. I was holding my hands behind me at that time on the left side because I suffered from polio when I was six years old. After the first Negro had beat until he was exhausted, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. The second Negro began to beat, and I began to work my feet. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro had beat to sit on my feet, to keep me from working my feet. I began to scream, and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress, I pulled my dress down, and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Medgar Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register. That testimony was so powerful that Lyndon B. Johnson, the president at the time, interrupted it with a bogus press conference celebrating the ninth anniversary of when a senator had gotten shot on the same day as Kennedy. He interrupted the testimony because he didn't want America to hear 
what actually was going on with race, particularly in the Deep South. The one question I want us to constantly come back to in this presentation is this, how does faith motivate social justice? The title of this presentation is Faith, Justice, and the Civil Rights Movement Through the Life of Fannie Lou Hamer. So let's think about this. Let's think about her Christian faith and let's think about her activism. And this is what stood out to me about Miss Fannie Lou Hamer is that there were a lot of civil rights activists but there were few who were as outspoken about their Christian faith as she was. And I wanted to know what was that arc between what she read in the Bible and learned in church and, and her voter registration efforts? What was that arc that connected her getting beat in a prison in Mississippi to a, a, a cosmic cause for justice? And that's what I want us to ponder. I don't know that we'll answer all those questions for you, but what I hope is to help bridge the divide that sometimes exists between our beliefs belief and our practice, particularly in cases of social justice, public justice. In other words, I'm not just talking about personal piety. I'm not just talking about you being a good person individually. I'm talking about us praying thy kingdom come and what are you going to do about it? That's what I'm talking about. And that's what, that, what struck me about Miss Fannie Lou. Now, as we ponder that question, how does faith motivate social justice? Here's the agenda. We got to talk about the rise of Jim Crow. I know you've heard of it, but let's dig in to the nitty gritty. And I'm going to warn you in advance. This is the kind of stuff that they don't talk about at length in the history books. This is the kind of stuff that, 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 that doesn't get a lot of likes and retweets on social media. This is the kind of stuff that, that, that's not even brought up in many churches. And there's a reason for that. It's because it's ugly. It's brutal. You heard Miss Hamer's testimony, and that's just one person and one incident. There's so much more. And the reason I do this is not to just like put it on display for some sort of sick victim voyeurism. I do it because if we don't know the depth of the problem, we can't come up with appropriate solutions. It's like going to the doctor. If the doctor doesn't diagnose you correctly, she can't prescribe the right medicine. So how do we prescribe the right medicine to injustice in our time? We got to understand how deep and sick we are. All right. I can't promise you I won't preach. Um, <laughs> but I'm just giving you a heads up. And let me tell you a little about me because this is personal to me. This is not just an academic endeavor, okay? Now, I grew up in the Midwest, actually about an hour from here in, uh, near Chicago, but I came down south through a program called Teach for America, and they put me in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side. I'd never been there, didn't know nothing about it, but I tell you the truth. My mom, who was a teacher for 37 years, in uh, inner city type schools. She'd rather me come down south than go to an inner city school. So I said, yes, ma'am. When I went down there, I, I had the privilege of teaching these students. These are students you see here from my first class of sixth graders. This is their high school graduation. Believe it or not, they've already graduated college. The, the, the young man on the very far end, he went to culinary school and is now a chef. Uh, the man in the middle who has uh, the valedictory garments, he went to Colby College in Maine, this boy from the Delta, was president of his class all four years. And guess what he did after? He came back to the Delta, 
back to the school he graduated from and is now a teacher there. It's an amazing story. I love it. But it was in the Delta that I first began to experience in real time the history of America's racial past and in many cases present. You can't drive past a cotton field blooming without thinking of slavery and sharecropping. You, you, you can't walk five steps in Mississippi without tripping over civil rights history. In our church in Jackson, where I lived for a few years, James Meredith, who was the first African-American to integrate the University of Mississippi, he was in my Sunday school class. There's something about being in the deep south that makes this real to you, and so it became real to me. I mentioned Jackson. I went to Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson where I earned my MDiv. It was there that we started the African American Leadership Initiative. Why? We wanted to, one, recruit more African Americans to the seminary, and two, we wanted to equip Christians of any race for multi-ethnic and cross-cultural ministry. And so it was there I began to think about, well, how does my theology connect to this history and this experience as a person of African descent in America. And quite honest with you, I didn't find a lot of answers. They weren't in the books. My professors, who were all great and godly men, didn't have this background. And so I had to go digging and searching on my own. It was about this time that we started the Reformed African American Network. If you haven't visited the website, do so, raanetwork.org. That's rannetwork.org. And we also started a podcast called Pass the Mic. And if you haven't accessed past the mic, thank y'all, uh, you can download it from iTunes or even better, the Satchel podcast app, which allows you to donate directly to us. Thank you. <laughs> Developed by our very own Bo York. And now this journey has led me to the University of Mississippi, where I'm in a graduate program in history, studying specifically second half U.S. history, uh, in particular 20th century race and religion. And so I had heard about Fannie Lou Hamer, but I didn't know anything about her until I started reading it as, a, as an adult when I should have known already. And so hopefully you learn earlier than I did. What makes Miss Fannie Lou Hamer so exceptional is she has the most troublesome trifecta in the nation. She was poor, she was black, and she was a woman. That's a recipe for oppression. And yet in the midst of it, she has such strength, and we're going to learn more about why. Two books I recommend on this history. Uh, it's specific to Mississippi, but I recommend it in general for civil rights history. It's called Local People by John Dittmer, and the other is I've Got the Light of Freedom by Charles M. Payne. And you can find those at any regular bookstore. Now, one of the things you learn about as you read this history is, is, is that these events didn't happen in isolation. They happened in a context. They happened in the context of Jim Crow. So let's talk about that. So you've got the antebellum period where slavery is running rampant. You've got the Civil War, which was fought over the question of slavery. And don't let anyone tell you different. The Civil War was fought over the question of slavery. And then right after the Civil War, you get this very brief and shining moment of African-American empowerment called Reconstruction, 1865 to 1877. It was dismantled because of a political compromise in the federal government. Uh, to get the election, the president made a deal with Southern segregationist politicians, and as part of that deal, 
They pulled out, federal troops pulled out of the South, essentially leaving recently freed slaves at the mercy of their former masters. What happened after 1877 is something called redemption, white redemption, which is full of all kinds of theological over and undertones there. But it was this idea of taking back the South. And what resulted from that period was this era we know as Jim Crow. This is legalized and customary segregation and oppression. To answer your question, brother, why? We got to understand this one concept. It's called the chattel principle. The chattel principle. Now, the chattel principle by James W.C. Pennington says this. The being of slavery, its soul and its body, lives and moves in the chattel principle, the property principle, the bill of sale principle. The cart whip, starvation, and nakedness are its inevitable consequences. The chattel principle, chattel means property. And so, so what you got to understand, a lot of people say that America's original sin is racism. I disagree. America's original sin is greed. America's original sin is what the Bible calls avarice. This desire for more stuff, more money, more comfort, more power that it gives. And without that driving principle of greed, slavery loses its foundation. But with it, this is what happens. So the impulse of, 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 of unrestrained capitalism is, is simple. Maximize profit, minimize what? Minimize what? Cost. Maximize profit, minimize cost. And this, in its simplest form, is what plantation owners were trying to do with slavery. The racial caste system based on skin color came about as a byproduct of this chattel principle. So, so, so if, if, if you are a farm owner and you've got this cash crop of cotton, which is, which is white gold, it's exploding in value. At one point, uh, people in Vicksburg, Mississippi had more millionaires per capita than anywhere in the country. And you want to maximize your profit. Your biggest expenditure is typically labor. It's the money you got to pay people. So how do you save money? You don't pay them. They call that slavery. And to save even more money, you don't provide for them except for the bare basic minimum. And so you give them a shack. You give them burlap sacks. You don't give them shoes. You give them just enough so they can go out and work for you. And you don't have to spend much money on them. Oh, and by the way, you can increase your property through biological means. By, by, by having a, a studs go and impregnate as many women as possible. Because the, the, the children born to an enslaved woman were themselves slaves. And so you maximize your profit and you minimize your cost. And that's what's driving slavery. But then guess what? Civil War comes along, Emancipation Proclamation, slaves in the seceding states are freed. Then they pass an amendment that frees all the slaves. Now I've lost my very cheap slash free labor. So now what do I do? Well, 
you're still trying to maximize profit and minimize costs, so enter sharecropping. What do we know about sharecropping? Anybody know anything? Slaves, former slaves, would get a portion of what they earn, what they farm on land. They get a share of the crops. Now, here's the way it's supposed to work. I say supposed to. Recently freed slaves could basically rent a portion of property from a plantation owner. They would work that land of their own free will. At the end, come harvest time, they would gather all the crops and then they would settle up with the plantation owner who was supposed to take a share of their crops and they would get to keep the rest. The idea being you could eventually accumulate enough wealth to either survive or even buy your own farm. Now, that's how it's supposed to work. Didn't work like that. It worked as a form of debt peonage or modern slavery. So what would happen is this. Recently freed slaves, you ain't got no money. You don't have any accumulated savings. So at the beginning of the season, you need farm implements. You need seeds. You need a house. Where are you going to get that money? Where are you going to get that capital outlay? You got to borrow it from the plantation owner. Well, he's going to jack up the, the, the interest rate. And guess what? Come harvest time when you bring your crop, well, it just so happens you owe me this much, this much, this much, this much. By the way, you can't buy anything off the plantation. They have a commissary on the plantation. You got to buy all your stuff from there throughout the year. So you rack up a bill there too. And then when it comes time to settle up, guess what? Sorry, you broke even. You don't get any profit. I get everything you got is mine. Or actually you're in debt. And you got to stay another year and another year and another year. And each year you would get deeper and deeper into debt. So you see how poverty works generationally. This is sharecropping and this replaced race-based chattel slavery. But it didn't replace the chattel principle that people are property and that the motive is to get as much money as you can for as little cost as you can. So you get an idea of the reality in which Fannie Lou Hamer and millions of other African Americans live. Now, here's the thing. In such an unjust system, why didn't people rise up? I mean, we had just fought the Civil War. Why not rise up again and fight for our rights in this terrible, lopsided Jim Crow system? Why? Because of domestic terrorism. One of the things that we got to realize is that the racial caste system, And the idea of white supremacy, when you carry it out to its logical conclusion, always takes itself out on black bodies. It always ends up physical. There's a quote by Ta-Nehisi Coates from his book, Between the World and Me, that I frequently revisit. And I want to share it with you. It says this. It's hard to face this. But all our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscles, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions, all land with great violence upon the body. 
when Luther Holbert was caught in a love triangle with another sharecropper, uh, this other sharecropper went to get the white plantation owner, who happened to be the brother of Senator Jim Eastland, one of the most notorious segregationist senators in modern times. Well, Eastland and, and this uh, sharecropper went to Luther Holbert's house either to teach him a lesson or to kill him. Luther Holbert ends up killing them both. Nobody knows all the details, but we do know what happened afterwards. I would like to read you an excerpt from a blog post I wrote about lynching. You may have read it online, but this is where I warned you how brutal it gets. And as I read, I want you to remember that if we carry racism and chattel principle to its end, it always inflicts violence upon black bodies. Listen to this. Jim Crow justice was quick and certain for any black man who killed a white man. Fearing for their lives, Luther and his girlfriend or wife, Mary Holbert, went on the run. Led by Eastland's brother, Woods Caperton Eastland, the alleged crime ignited the white population and hundreds of white men who pursued the Holberts with bloodhounds guiding them. Despite Mary disguising herself as a man and hiding in the swamps, the Holberts were captured three days later. What happened next is a horror of inhumanity. So the lynching didn't happen immediately. It was planned for the next day, a Sunday afternoon, so a large crowd could gather after church. The murderers strategically chose a location for maximum intimidation. It took place on the property of a black church in Doddsville, Mississippi. The black church has historically been the locus of religious and communal life for black people. Performing a lynching on church grounds sent a message to all black people that no place was safe from white supremacy. More than a thousand people showed up to gawk at the lynching of Luther and Mary Holbert. The lynchers tied up the Holberts and commenced with, quote, the most fiendish tortures. First, the white murderers cut off each of the fingers and toes of their victims and gave them out as souvenirs. Then they beat them so mercilessly that one of Luther Holbert's eyes hung only by a shred from its socket. Then came the most fiendish abuse. The Vicksburg Evening Post reported, quote, the most excruciating form of punishment consisted in the use of a large corkscrew in the hands of some of the mob. This instrument was bored into the flesh of the man and woman, in the arms, legs, and body, and then pulled out, the spirals tearing out big pieces of raw, quivering flesh every time it was withdrawn. Finally, the Holberts, who were still alive, were taken to a pyre. The white men cruelly forced two black men under the threat of death to drag the Holberts to the fires. They burned Mary first so Luther could see his beloved killed. Then they burned him. The brutality of lynching and domestic terrorism kept and has kept the racial caste system and white supremacy in place. If people will not fall in line, they will pay the price. Now, that is the context in which Fannie Lou Hamer grew up. That is the context for her activism. 
That gives you a taste for what she risked by doing something as simple as trying to vote. So let's talk about the life of Fannie Lou Hamer. She was born Fannie Lou Townsend in 1917. She was the last of 20 children, 16 boys, four girls, 14 boys, six girls. She started sharecropping at six years old when the plantation owner tricked her into picking cotton when he promised her candy and other goodies if she picked 30 pounds that week. She didn't stop sharecropping or picking cotton after that. She talks about something called scrapping cotton, which if you read the Old Testament, talks about this idea of gleaning. And so after the crop has been harvested, the poor can go and, and get the leftovers. This is sort of like that, but not as nice. So her mother used to go around from farm to farm with her children begging to scrap cotton. And this is what Fannie Lou Hamer said. My mother would always tie up our feet with rags because the ground be froze real hard. We would walk from field to field until we scrapped a bale of cotton. And then they would use that bale and sell it for extra money. But they were poor. In terms of food, she said, so many times for dinner, we would have greens with no seasoning and flour gravy. Sometimes there'd be nothing but bread and onions. One time, her father, Jim Townsend, cleared enough money at the end of a season to, to actually buy some things. He bought some, some farm implement. He bought some cattle, some, some mules. And the idea was he could uh, uh, farm enough to eventually buy his own farm the next year. But you know what happened? They put a chemical called Paris Green into the food of the animals, and it killed them within moments. And as Fannie Lou Hamer reflected on that, she said, the, that white man did it just because we were getting somewhere. Just at the moment they were starting to rise out of poverty, racism wiped it out, and they never recovered economically. Fannie Lou Hamer was heavily influenced by her mother. Uh, some of the audio recordings that we hear come from an album called Songs My Mother Taught Me. It's on iTunes. You can download it. It's actual recordings of her singing and of her interviews. Her mother passed on the faith to her. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Fannie Lou Hamer made it to sixth grade with her education before she was forced out to work full time. But it's incredible because of her civil rights activity, she was actually or, um, awarded an honorary doctorate from Tougaloo College, so maybe we should call her Dr. Hamer. In adulthood, she married Perry, or Pap for short, Hammer, Hamer, another sharecropper, and they started sharecropping on the Marlowe Plantation for 18 years. Here's one of the facts about Fannie Lou Hamer's tragic experience that has never left me. She went in for a routine sort of routine surgery, to have some cysts removed. When she went under, the doctor performed a hysterectomy on her without her knowledge or consent. When she woke up, she didn't have a uterus and she was unable to conceive. Now for a woman who was raised as one of 20 children and married and who hoped to have a family of her own, this was a devastating experience for her. Nevertheless, she went on and adopted two children from the community, two daughters, and raised them as her own. One who was burned so badly by a fire, her biological parents didn't think they could raise her. And so she became a mother in her own right, 
and a mother to all the children in the community. It was in adulthood that Fannie Lou Hamer first got into civil rights activity. By the way, I love this picture you're looking at of Fannie Lou Hamer. It's a Delta Road, very characteristic. A lot of the Delta looks like this even now, and you can see the lines of weariness, but also wisdom on the face of Fannie Lou Hamer as she looks at the ground thinking about who knows. But I love that photo. One day, she went to a voter registration rally put on by the uh, Congress of Federated Organizations, and she learned about black voting rights. And she says, they talked about how it was our rights as human beings to register and vote. I never knew we could vote before. Nobody ever told us. The next week, she was one of the very few who had the courage to go to the courthouse and register to vote. And what did she get for her efforts? The plantation owner, Mr. Marlowe, sent her a message that said if she didn't take her name off the rolls, she was going to be fired and evicted. She said, I didn't come down there to register for you. I came to register for me. And she had to leave that very night from the plantation she had sharecropped on for 18 years. Now homeless, now jobless for the cause of justice. But she said this, when they kicked me off the plantation, they set me free. It's the best thing that could happen. Now I can work for my people. June 9th, 1963 is the day that she was beaten in the prison in Mississippi. In the audio recording we heard at the beginning, we heard about her beating. We didn't hear about the other people in the jail at that time who also received a beating. And so one of the people there was June Johnson. June Johnson was a teenager who had begged her mother to let her go on this trip to South Carolina to learn civil rights activism. She was also one of the ones who was imprisoned with Fannie Lou Hamer and beaten. They took the prisoners one by one and beat them so that the other prisoners could hear what was happening. And this is what Fannie Lou Hamer remarked about June Johnson's beating, teenager. Johnson, became cr Johnson began crying and screaming for help. Finally, the men began concentrating most of their blows to her head. In the end, she was left with a sizable permanent knot and a left eye that was irreparably damaged. The attackers then tore off most of her clothes. Personal humiliation was just as much their objective as was the physical injury and political intimidation. After the beatings, the jailer's wife and daughter snuck them cold water while the men weren't looking. And what Fannie Lou Hamer said to the jailer's wife must have felt like a heap of burning coals on her head. She said this, y'all is nice. You must be Christian people. And then she told the jailer's wife to look up two verses. She told her to look up Proverbs 26, 26, which says, though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. 
And she told her to look up Acts 17, 26, which says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Think she had a Christian message for the jailer's wife and daughter? But Fannie Lou Hamer, in contrast to most of us, certainly me, didn't let this beating in the Winona jail end her activism. In fact, it motivated her. Faith turned an obstacle into an opportunity, abuse into agency, and tragedy into a testimony. I want to read you this excerpt from another book I recommend. It's called God's Long Summer by Charles Marsh, Stories of Faith and Civil Rights. He says this, I just, it's just incredible writing about this abuse. It says, the experience in the Winona jail proved to be a kind of Golgotha for Mrs. Hamer. An experience of intense physical pain and humiliation, her world was unmade, stripped of inner security, quote, uncreated. Objects, places, or situations associated with nurturing or pleasure became brutal and mocking. In the bullpen, Miss Hamer was made to lie down on a bed. Flat on her stomach, she received blow upon blow of the hard instrument against her back, making it difficult, if not impossible, to sit normally or sleep afterward since her back was covered with welts and lacerations. She said, I've been sleeping on my face because I was just as hard as bone. In the bullpen, she was ordered not to scream, to allow herself that most elemental response to pain. Instead, her voice was muted by the mattress. Her protests silenced. Not only was language destroyed for her in this annihilating moment, even the sounds anterior to language were quashed. Mrs. Hamer, the lady who knew how to sing, became voiceless. But that voicelessness lasted only for a moment because she used that experience as a testimony to fight for rights. Now, what we heard, I'll get, I'll get to the rest of her life in a moment, but I want to pause and talk about race and black women. Now, I realize I'm a man talking about this, and so I come with a certain deficit. But I do want to pay attention to my growing awareness of this issue. I mentioned in the beginning that Fannie Lou Hamer had at least three strikes against her. She was poor, she was black, and she was a woman. That comes with certain consequences that other people don't experience. The intersection of class, race, and gender means certain things for certain people. If you think about Fannie Lou Hamer being beaten in that jail, there was a certain sexualized element to it. Her dress came up. She tried to pull it down. The jailer refused. And that's always been the case that black women have been sexualized and brutalized by the racial caste system. Does anyone know who that is in the picture? It's artist rendering. Recently in the news because they discovered a historic room. You heard the name Sally Hemings whom some call Thomas Jefferson's mistress. What's wrong with that word, mistress? You shout it out. 
devalues her, yes. She had no choice. The word is inaccurate. She was a slave. Thomas Jefferson didn't have sex with her. He raped her repeatedly from the time she was a teenager. Because she was a slave, she had no rights. She was property. Anybody remember this incident? It stuck with me. Cops were called to a pool party a couple of years ago. Officers responded with what I personally think was unnecessary force. A teenager named Dejeria Becton was tackled to the ground and detained. She was threatening in her two-piece bikini. But the brutalization of black women has a long history, which is why when I see these events in real time, I don't just look at them as isolated events. It's part of a longer trajectory. And it's not only that. Black women have always been considered superhumanly strong. Unfairly so. What happened in slavery is that black women were considered stronger than white women. And so black women had a double burden. They had to go out and work the land, just like the men, but they also had to bear children, either by someone who wasn't their husband, who had been chosen to breed with them, someone, uh, a white slave owner who raped them, or occasionally someone they loved. But as soon as they had the child, they were expected to get back to work rather quickly, whereas white women would be given time to convalesce and be protected. Black women were expected to go back out and now not only work, not only bear children, but bear most of the responsibility for raising the children. This was and still in many ways is a black woman's work. And it's not fair. It's built on a society that has systematically devalued not only black people, but black women in particular. And we've got to recognize that because black women face obstacles different than black men or black people in general. And this is not weighing the scales of, of who's got it more tragic. It's bringing light and shedding light on the fact that this history goes untold and unacknowledged. So value black women. Respect black women. Love black women. I want to finish up with Fannie Lou Hamer's life real quickly, and then we'll talk about faith and social justice. Fannie Lou Hamer was part of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. As I mentioned at the beginning, you couldn't participate in politics if you were black in Mississippi. The Democratic Party was all white, which meant all your elected officials were white, and they had to be segregationists if you wanted to win. They had to reinforce the racial caste system. So the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was organized by civil rights activists as a multiracial initiative to unseat the all-white Democratic Party. And they were successful to the point of actually going to the Democratic National Convention in 1964. And what they were doing there was demanding that they be seated and unseat the unconstitutional all-white delegation. 
Unfortunately, they were not successful. It ended in a compromise where they got what's called two at-large seats. They were non-voting. It was purely symbolic measure. But it raised enough awareness that Lyndon Johnson leveled all the forces possible he could to stop the delegation from being seated. Now, Lyndon Johnson actually passed the Civil Rights Act. He did a lot of things politically for civil rights, but, but he was a politician. He had to maneuver. He had to, he had to wheel and deal, and he knew if he alienated completely Southern whites, he couldn't get the rest of his agenda passed through. Now, Hubert Humphrey was a senator who he dispatched to broker this deal. And as he was talking about the deal, this is how Fannie Lou Hamer connected faith and action. She said this to Senator Hubert Humphrey. She said, do you mean to tell me that your position is more important than 400,000 black people's lives? Senator Humphrey, I know lots of people in Mississippi who have lost their jobs trying to register to vote. I had to leave the plantation where I worked in Sunflower County, Mississippi. Now, if you lose this job of vice president because you do what is right, because you help the MFDP, everything will be all right. God will take care of you. But if you take this nomination, but if you take the nomination this way, why, you will never be able to do any good for civil rights, for poor people, for peace, or any of those things you talk about. Senator Humphrey, I'm going to pray to Jesus for you. This is a woman who is talking to the man who's running for vice president of the United States. And she's talking about justice, social justice. She's talking about voting rights, but she's connecting it to her faith. There's right and there's wrong. And the Bible tells us which is which. And for Miss Hamer, if you weren't doing right, according to scripture, she would talk about it. We have much to learn from Fannie Lou Hamer. I love this quote, don't you? Fannie Lou Hamer said, it's poison for us not to speak what we know is right. And this is part of why she was so outspoken in her faith. So what made Fannie Lou Hamer so effective as an advocate for social justice? Well, you heard it, didn't you? When we listen to her voice, there's a certain power in her voice, isn't there? It's almost as if her lack of formal education and therefore her, her, her rural southern black vernacular actually adds power to what she's saying. Why? Because there's an authenticity to Fannie Lou Hamer. She wasn't talking about abstract concepts of, of justice and righteousness. She was talking about things that she had lived and experienced. What are you going to tell Fannie Lou Hamer about racism? What are you going to tell Fannie Lou Hamer, who grew up dirt poor as a sharecropper, about poverty? What are you going to tell Fannie Lou Hamer, who got an, a hysterectomy against her will, about injustice? What are you going to tell Fannie Lou Hamer, who was beaten in a prison unjustly about suffering? What are you going to tell Fannie Lou Hamer, who gave up her, her house and, and her job and her well-being and, and her husband and her two daughters were included? What are you going to tell her about sacrifice? What made Fannie Lou Hamer effective? Her life, her testimony. And don't you know that's true of you, too? <laughs> uh, this great poet Jay-Z said 
You can't heal what you never reveal. And so Fannie Lou Hamer took, took, took this dark moment in her life, this Golgotha moment, as Charles Marsh said, this beating in a prison, and she trumpeted it from the mountaintop. She's, she's not unlike uh, uh, Medgar, um, Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley. She took the moment of her most acute pain, her son, 14 years old, beaten and thrown into a river and said, I want an open casket. Did you know they had to put glass over the body and, and suck out the air because the stench was so bad? And she said, I want people to see this. And she took this moment of agony and turned it into a testimony for the cause of justice and righteousness. Fannie Lou Hamer did the same thing with her beating in prison. Now, I talked about the black church not separating historically faith and politics. This is crucial. A lot of people ask me, well, what does the white church have to learn from the black church? I mean, I think that's a good posture to have, right? This is a give and take. We're not talking about cultural imperialism. We're not talking about theological imperialism where, 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 where white theology imports itself into the black church to make it better and fix it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a give and take and exchange as brothers and sisters in Christ. So, yeah, what does the white church have to learn from the black church? One of the things is social justice. Why? Because when you learn the faith in the midst of race-based chattel slavery, and I want to put this pebble in your shoe. We often fixate on this moment of the Civil War, but you know there were hundreds of years before that when the abolition of slavery wasn't even on the horizon. Can you imagine? There were millions of people born, living, and died in slavery with no end in sight. So you tell me, how do you laugh in that situation? How do you find a way to, to smile in that situation? How do you fall in love? How do you raise children in that situation, knowing that from birth to death, they will be enslaved and subjugated? It was the Christian faith that kept that hope alive. And it was in this context that black people learned the faith and they were able, able to, to eat the meat and spit out the bones because you know the verse that white slave owners loved to quote to slaves? You know what it is, don't you? Slaves, obey your masters. They love that one. But you see, God is so good that he enabled the African people to hear the message of scripture in spite of all the racism and hatred that stood in the way because of the messenger. And when you learn the faith in that context, you ask different questions and you come up with different solutions. You ask, what does God say about my condition? You wonder, does this word have anything to do with my suffering? You ask, can God help me? And the black church tradition answered those, asked those questions and they found out, yes, God cares. God hates 
race-based chattel slavery that dehumanized all involved. God hates racism that ranks people according to skin color. And, and what he created to display the beauty of diversity, it became a demonic tool of destruction. God hates the unjust scales that kept women and men in bondage to debt and poverty. God hates a church divided on race and class. And God says, show me your faith by your works. Faced with injustice every day, the question is not how does faith motivate action? The question is how could it not? Now, Fannie Lou Hamer was a member of a black Baptist church. Her mother was a big influence on her faith. She used to teach them songs as well as scripture. But you got to understand People like Fannie Lou Hamer didn't always have the support of the black church. Did you know that? There was a class difference in the class church. And and, and middle class preachers who were educated and had a stable job relatively independent of the white power structure, sometimes they didn't want to disrupt things. Did you know that, that, that Martin Luther King couldn't remain in the National Baptist Convention? It was too conservative. They didn't like his direct action techniques of, of marching and, 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 and protests and, and, and boycotts. They wanted him to work more gradually, and so he had to, to, to join the progressive National Baptist Convention to find a denominational home that would accommodate his activism. It was similar with Fannie Lou Hamer. As she began getting more and more into activism, she got more and more frustrated with black preachers who were so comfortable in their position that they wouldn't support her and her cause. And she called them old chicken-eating preachers because all they would do is go around to people's houses and eat meals served to them. And so understand, and we'll get into this in our roundtable discussion of the of black church, the black church is the mother of the faith for many African-Americans, but it's a diverse church. It hasn't always been monolithic in terms of its activism. Now, I like the way Carl Ellis puts it. He talks about the black church being concerned with the ethical and intuitive side of theology, whereas many white Christians have historically been concerned with the epistemological and cognitive side of theology. In other words, that's the stuff you read in those systematic theology textbooks. That's the stuff you learn in your college and seminary classes. And that's all good. That's fine. But what it doesn't get to as much is how you live out the faith in the midst of oppression. And so what, what, what does the white church have to learn from the black church? What can white theology learn from black theology? It's, it's how to live as a believer in the context of a society that dehumanizes you. That's why I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't track with any option that doesn't mention the black church. All right. Now, I would go further, though. And I would say it's not as if the white church and white theology didn't understand this concept of faith leading to social action. You want to know why I say that? Because when they wanted to, to get rid of alcohol during prohibition, they mobilized politically. When they wanted to keep prayer in public schools, they mobilized politically. When they wanted segregation to remain in place, they mobilized politically. When they wanted to repeal Roe v. Wade, they mobilized politically. So they don't misunderstand the concept that faith can lead to social and political action. It's just that they're selective. 
And when it comes to social action that, 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 that levels the playing field for people of all colors and classes, well then, well, that's, that's a personal issue. Church is spiritual. You know, it gets me, uh, a lot of times in the civil rights movement, they weren't writing new things. They were calling America back to its foundation, right? That's why you often hear civil rights workers talk about the Declaration of Independence and all people being created equal. They're like, look, this is great. Now just live it. And we can do the same thing with white theology. Westminster Larger Catechism. I love the catechism. Catechism is a way of learning theology through a question and answer format. Westminster Larger Catechism is Presbyterian in origin. And question 131 says, it's talking about the commandment, honor your father and mother. And the way they interpret that is is, is not just parents and children, but any uh, superior, superior subordinate relationship, right? But then it also talks about equals, which all men are, all people are supposed to be created equal. So it says, what are the duties of equals? This is the theology developed by white men in the 1700s. It says, the duties of equals are to regard the dignity and worth of each other in giving honor to go one before another and to rejoice in each other's gifts and advancement at, as their own. Now, if people actually lived this, what would it do to racism? to regard the dignity and worth of each other. Question 132, what are the sins of equals? In other words, that's what you're supposed to do. What are you not supposed to do if you're equals? The sins of equals are, besides the neglect of the duties required, the undervaluing of the worth, envying the gifts. Remember remember when, when they poisoned the animals? Envying the gifts and grieving at the advancement of prosperity one or of another and usurping preeminence one over another. This is their own theology. Question 144, talking about the ninth commandment. What are the duties required? The preserving and promoting of truth between person and person, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice. I think about our courts. Question 145, what are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment? All prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public judicature, passing unjust sentence, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, You know, my denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, last year passed something called the Resolution on Civil Rights Remembrance. And what that document was created to do was to acknowledge that Southern Presbyterians during the Civil Rights Movement maintained undue silence in a just cause. Instead of joining with civil rights activists against racism and segregation, They were not only silent, but sometimes advanced to the cause of segregation. But in their own catechism, it says undue silence in a just cause is forbidden. And holding peace when iniquity calleth for either a reproof from ourselves or complaint to others and stopping our ears against just defense. You know, uh, Emmett Till's 
murderers got off scot-free until 1994 when one of them who was still living was convicted. And everybody knew who did it. But the all-white jury acquitted them. It was stopping their ears against a just defense. And so while white theology has tended toward the cognitive and epistemological side, there is an ethical dimension that if they followed it would lead to action in the social justice realm. Are you with me? Don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger. Now, I love this quote from Fannie Lou Hamer about her courage. She says, I guess if I'd had any sense, I'd have been a little scared, but what was the point of being scared? The only thing they could do was kill me. And it kind of seemed like they'd been trying to do that a little bit at a time since I could remember. And it reminded me of Matthew 10, 28, which says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So, what about you? And what about us as we look at faith and social justice today? What do we learn from the life of Fannie Lou Hamer? couple of things. One, we must learn to lament. I recently revisited a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 that says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the ears, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. There's a moment to grieve over injustice in our world, whether it be racial or immigration or gender. We must learn to be sad the way God is sad because this is not the way the world is supposed to be. At the same time, we must not succumb to cynicism. Fannie Lou Hamer said, I don't see how you can hate someone and expect to see God. And she echoed scripture in that. And she said that her faith would not allow her to hate white people. That there is too much hate in the world for that. And so rather than separate ourselves one from another, we must learn to work together and not succumb to cynicism that racism and poverty and injustice are still with us. And lastly, and this is my most heartfelt message for all of us is we must be strong and courageous. Joshua 1.9 says this, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Brothers and sisters, our issue is not that we do not know what to do. Our issue is that we lack the courage to do what must be done. Right now, you may be troubled by an injustice in the world, but you haven't spoken or acted boldly because you know how people will react. You know what they will say. But it doesn't matter what they say. What does God say? He says, be strong and courageous. Why? Because God knows 
that when you go to take the promised land, it will be hard. His land is a land of righteousness and justice and truth that he's prepared for his people, but you're going to have to fight for it in this life. We have to take the land, and it's hard because there are giants in the land, the giants of oppression and marginalization and all the isms in our life. And the Bible says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're up against. But even as God sends you into a land filled with enemies, he gives you a promise. His promise is right there at the end of the verse that the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. And you see, God has promised that wherever you go for the sake of justice, he will be with you. And he made that promise into a person, Jesus Christ. The one they call Emmanuel. God with us. And so if you have faith in Christ, then God is with you. So go and be strong and courageous. If your faith leads you to fight sex trafficking, then go. God is with you. If your faith leads you to work against mass incarceration, then go because God is with you. If your faith leads you to struggle for immigration reform, then go because God is with you. If your faith leads you to work for educational reform, then go because God is with you. If your faith leads you to dismantle white supremacy in all its forms, then go because God is with you. So be strong and courageous. And do you believe that? Will you connect your faith to justice as Fannie Lou Hamer did? And I'll close with this quote from her. She says, I'm never sure anymore when I leave home whether I'll get back or not. Sometimes it seemed like to tell the truth today is to run the risk of being killed. But if I fall, I'll fall five feet, four inches forward in the fight for freedom. I'm not backing off. Thank you. Brother Aaron, as, as, as we close, and we'll, I'll, I'll hang around for a few minutes after this, but there's a song on there by Fannie Lou Hamer. Okay, it's called This Little Light of Mine. And if you would, please stand up and you all know this song. I think it would be an appropriate testimony to the life of Miss Fannie Lou Hamer if we let her lead us in a rendition of this little light of mine.
Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Y'all pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for the people that you have assembled. And Father, we pray for the strength and courage that we need to fight the good fight of faith. Lord, there's so much wrong in this world, but may we, as your followers, be salt and light. God, we know many times what to do. And even when we don't, Lord, we know that we should act. But, oh, God, we are so timid, we are so fearful, and we are so afraid. But give us confidence in the fact that you promised us that wherever you send us, you will be there with us. And give us confidence in the fact that you put that promise in the form of a person, Jesus Christ, who is God with us. And so everywhere we go, Lord, Will you help us to let our light shine, which which God really isn't our light. It's your light shining through us. And so we pray that it would shine for your glory and your praise in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you all. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.